morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Marty Plum and I am your host of a pen and a napkin podcast, the weekly coaching clinic that you can carry around with you in your pocket. Episode number 30 and I am really, really, really excited for today's guest. Uh, we are two minutes away from being two minutes away from our guest today. Uh, that phrase will make sense here in just a second. So, uh, But before we get to uh, Fran Frischilla from ESPN, uh, we want to thank our sponsor for this episode, COSAC Chiropractic, uh, located at 14450 Eagle Run Drive, which is just off of 144th and Maple here in Omaha. Coaches, if you have an athlete who is struggling with uh, balance, neck, or spinal issues, have them go see Dr. Kevin or Dr. Heidi. Give them a call at 402-964-0300. Follow us on Twitter at a pen and a napkin. We try to have daily coaching tidbits on a pen and a napkin, so be sure to follow us there. If you're listening, you're on SoundCloud or iTunes, uh, download, rate, review, forward this out. Give us a five-star rating so that we can give it as many people following as possible. And last but certainly not least, if you have any questions or comments, uh, suggestions, ideas, uh, feel free to email me at a pen and a napkin at gmail.com. Coach, how are things in Dallas, Texas today? Well, like everybody else, it's uh, it's very strange down here. People are trying to, you know, stay off the streets, obviously, and uh, and get healthy and and uh, stay away from this virus. Something that uh, you know none of us have ever lived through, Marty, as you know. And uh, it's uh, it's kind of a new normal right now until until things get get back to normal the way we uh, know it, and that means that uh, at some point in time. Uh, you know, our baseball teams will get started, the college football kids will be back, and the NFL gets started, and soon enough it'll be basketball season, but right now there's more important things going on in the world. I'm trying to, I'm trying to be conscious of that. Yeah, I, I think that, uh, you know, I actually kind of thought about what to do with this, with the, with the pod and, yep. and the Twitter stuff, and, you know, we're in a situation where, yeah, we're in this new normal, but at yep. some point we're going to get back to the old normal, and we kind of need a little bit of the old normal while we're, while we're in the new normal, uh, as, as, as well, you know, so, you know, so, so I kind of, you know, I just said, you know, I'm I'm just going to keep going with this. And, and if people are offended or get upset, you know, I guess that, but I I think it's the right thing to do that. We try to do try to keep a lot of things as normal as we can. So, well, we, especially in light of the fact that there's no, especially when you're staying safe and, you know, hopefully your family's staying safe and we're all trying to abide by what the, you know, what our government officials want us to do, whether it's in, you know, in, in Dallas or Omaha or the states uh, or what the, what the federal government is doing. Uh, we'll do that. And at the same time, like I've got to tell you, I'm spending more time watching film, talking to coaches, uh, trying to help young coaches out. Um, I've been very active on Twitter lately, but I'll just tell you a quick story. Both my sons are in the coaching business. I'm very fortunate. One is a video coordinator with the Orlando Magic. and The other happens to be the video coordinator at Villanova. And both of those guys in the last 10 days, one of them's been home. They have taught me some basketball technology. And so I'm cutting up video now on Synergy and I'm, I'm doing clinics on Periscope, which I did last night. I and, saw that. Uh, I saw that. Yeah, and uh, so I'm, I'm making good use of this time from a basketball standpoint. But to your point, um, you know, we're in the playground of life. Of course, you're, you know, you're teaching and, and educating, and I'm just talking basketball uh, full time. So I feel like I'm in the 
playground of life. And at the same time, I do think we have to maintain some sense of normalcy. And so many of us still love this game so much. We can't wait for it to get back and get started again at the high school and college level. In the meantime, we'll stay safe and we'll try to stay occupied. And that's what I'm trying to do. Well, you know, you know, just uh, stay occupied while while you're going on your your walk with your dog here. You can uh, you can yeah. uh, start listening to uh, maybe a few backlogs of a pen and a napkin and see what yeah. you think. So yeah, no, I'm I'm up on your site now, and I think I'm going to do that. I, uh, as a matter of fact, I I've been on these five mile walks every afternoon, and I I'll always put in a podcast or two uh-huh. um, and listen. And so I'm you can bet a uh, pen and a napkin is going to be on the list so i'm looking forward to uh catching up on you got some good ones up there so i'm looking forward to that uh thanks coach i appreciate that so well let's uh let's dive right in here on on and i know you're a little bit limited on time we got a good chunk of time here but i I know i know you've got an appointment here to meet um most of the time i'd have folks kind of introduce themselves and kind of discuss their background but you're a little bit different than most of the guests i have on uh where you know uh you've been a a a career coach here uh i was you know when i was doing research here uh danny knee you know uh you know knee basket basketball or knee basketball uh gary williams the master of the flex uh rick barnes uh now at tennessee and then of course your head coaching stints at at manhattan st john's and new mexico and then of course the last uh about how long have you been at espn about 16 years ish let's see i think i think i started full-time in 2003 so i just completed whatever that is 17 18 seasons uh not sure how they run together but uh it's been it's been that long and um I left coaching at a young age, and I've got to tell you this quick story. I'm a former Nebraska assistant oh, for two weeks. For two, for two weeks. weeks. For two weeks. I, I came. I came to Nebraska in 1986 with Danny D when he got hired. Uh-huh. I, was, I was with Danny for five years before that. He was a great influence on me. He uh, he, he really taught me uh, accountability. I always tell people he fired me five times, but. Luckily, he hired me six, and, <laughs> and I was never fired more than 24 hours, but uh, he came from Digger Phelps uh-huh. and the Notre Dame family, and, and Danny was a stickler for details, And uh, but I came out to Nebraska for two weeks, and I got homesick for Ohio, and uh-huh. of course, our other assistant coach uh, at Ohio U, Billy Hahn, was one of my best friends in the world, so... I asked Danny if it would be okay if I if I stayed at Ohio U and uh, helped Billy continue to build the program. Uh, and we didn't talk for a couple weeks, but uh, he got over it. And, um, you know, it was disappointing for him because I, I learned so much from him. So I stayed in Ohio, but I was I was a Nebraska assistant coach for two weeks. For two and, weeks. And uh, the, guy, the guys out, the, the, the media guys uh, – uh, in Nebraska that are still going strong. It's been 30 years. Some of them are now retired, but uh, every time I'd come do a game at the, the Devaney Center when, when the Cornhuskers were in the Big 12, and we'd always have a good laugh about me being a former assistant coach in Nebraska. So, uh, uh, and I have fond memories now at ESPN uh, of being, you know, being at Nebraska covering some great games. And uh, I actually miss coming to Lincoln and uh, you know, going on what's going on with the Pinnacle Arena and all the 
great stuff going on, you know, downtown Lincoln. It's uh, I miss I miss coming in as a broadcaster. Yeah, the the you know the uh, the arena is terrific. Um, my, my son, our oldest, is a is a sophomore at Nebraska, and, yeah. and he actually was uh, one of Coach Hoiberg's managers this year. There uh, you go. So he, he's getting a great education. He is. He's he's learning yes. a lot, and and uh, really proud of him as well, just like you are of your boys. So yep. Yep, absolutely. So let's jump into it here. You're a, you're a New York City guy. Uh, yep. You know, grew up there. Uh, went to high school. Went to college. Um, what type of effect growing up in the New York City area did that have on your coaching career? Well, it, it had a lot. It did. It really did. I I, uh, I chose after high school not to play. I was a Division three player, and uh, I chose to. I, I got. It was. It's hard to believe now, but my. My head coach, uh, my high school head coach, said, "Listen, we can make an exception for you if you want to come back and coach the JV. We don't have anybody that wants the job, and if you'd like to be the, you'd have to be the volunteer coach, but you would be the JV head coach at the high school." I actually came back as a college freshman and started my coaching career as a JV high school coach in mm-hmm. the. In Brooklyn particularly, uh, I got a real great basketball education. I really did. Uh, I ended up being a really good playground player, played, you know, five or six, seven hours a day in the summer. I'd go, I'd go work on my game in the morning and early afternoon, wait for the old guys to come back to the playground at night after work, play with them, get beat up, uh, not, not literally, uh, figuratively. Sure. And so I, I had this great love of, of playing the game, but I knew at an early age that I wasn't going to be a, a great college player. So I shifted quickly, Marty, into, into, into wanting to be a coach. Um, I liked being in charge, you know, and I was usually the smallest guy on the court. And but telling everybody where to go, and uh, I felt good about you know uh, the, my love of the game, and so that's how it all happened. And uh, it, you know, I, it just for for example, in our division, in, in my league, I don't know what they call it in Nebraska district play or conference play, but I, I played against Rolando Blackman, who had a long NBA career, uh-huh. Vinny uh-huh. Johnson, who had a long NBA career, uh, Albert King, who had another long NBA career, so. I was around great players growing up um, in Brooklyn, but coaching was in my blood really from, from the time I was about 14 years old. And uh, being in a basketball city like New York, absolutely um, it helped with my love of the game, which I, I still carry to this day. Yeah. How did you, uh, how'd you get involved with the international scouting and doing that for ESPN? Well, you know, once once I left coaching, and again, I left at 43 with the idea that I was going to take a couple years off, do some TV, and then go back, um, I, I just started to really enjoy my sons and being around them in the off season. And ESPN uh-huh. afforded me that opportunity as a broadcaster to have more, a little more family time. And early in my ESPN career, around 2004, uh, one of my former players at Manhattan College was a very good NBA scout. Uh, and really was at the forefront of international uh, scouting for the mm-hmm. NBA. He, he had been a player that played overseas and had a lot of connections. So my first year of covering the NBA draft was 2004, and um, I, I was given the charge to, get to know all the international kids. I had a great love of international basketball that had built up because another former player of mine was from Spain, kid mm-hmm. at Manhattan College, 
who wound up knocking down five threes against Oklahoma, and we knocked him off at the NCAA tournament. Yep. But we took our team to Spain right before his senior year in 1995, and I just fell in love with international hoops, even even that far back. So when I went to NBA and, and when, when I went to ESPN, my, one of my bosses said, if you want to do the draft, we've got a spot for you internationally. Well, I went over to this camp in Italy that was run by uh, the NBA. My former player was actually the camp director. I, I show up at the camp as a media guy. And Donnie Nelson, who's the you know the great GM of the Dallas yep. Mavericks, yep. and I live in Dallas, Donnie, Donnie and I have been friends a long time. He asked what I was doing there. I said I was covering the camp, and he said, "You're not covering the camp. You're coaching at it." <laughs> so uh, the next thing I know, I'm coaching a team, and for the next 13 years, I coached so many of the guys that are now in the NBA, and, and, and the international game is now melded into the NBA game. And uh, the love of the, you know, I'm a, I'm a junkie anyway. So whether it's a Nebraska high school game or a game, you know, watching on tape between two teams in France. I'm a hoops junkie, and that's how the international love started, and it's uh, it's continued to this day. And you kind of came into it at the the perfect time, where because of the dream yes. team, the 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 international players really were, you know, that was you know around that 2004 2005. That's yes. when the, the the real influence of the where where they could come in and they were ready to play right away. Well, you made a great point. I've got to tell you, a lot of the young international kids who started to come into the NBA, let's just even go back as far as 2000, 2001, mm-hmm. uh, and even 1998 when Dirk entered the league as an 18-year-old. And yeah. later, later on, Paul Gasol in 2001. But you're right. If you think about it, the kids who were 10 years old, when they started, when they watched the Dream Team in 1992, you know, 10 years later, it would have been 2002. Uh-huh. And those, those kids who maybe fell in love with basketball watching the Dream Team in Barcelona, talking about the international kids, they would have been 20 years old in 2002. And yeah. so that's when the spigot opened up. And of course, all these years later, it's hard to believe this, but a quarter of the NBA is now born outside the United States. So I did catch it at the perfect time. Um, I was able to, for a long time, explain to the average basketball fan, you know, what this international hoops was all about. And uh, I've fallen in love with it. It's it's part of my DNA now. And um, because, as I mentioned, I love all sorts of basketball, it became uh, something that I really love still following to this day. Yeah. Um, what uh, what have you seen in your in your study of the international ball we we've seen the influence of of the passing kind of the five out uh the face up fours and the face up fives what are what are you seeing internationally um that we maybe haven't seen in the united states yet is there anything that's going on in in europe or in africa or in the far east that the United States hasn't seen yet that has been as influential as even just something as simple as the Euro step, which, yeah. uh, you know, things like that. Well, let me, let me bring it back to the high school level. Okay. Cause that's who most of your listeners are. Yeah. Um, we talked about like, uh, international basketball being four out and big guys that can shoot it. And, uh, you know, um, and that influence on the NBA. Well, as you know, 
small ball has been around high school basketball forever. Absolutely. I mean, if you're, yeah. if you're a guy in Hastings, Nebraska, and, you know, you have a, a, a four really good guards and one big kid who maybe might have been a lineman on the football team and he's six foot four and you stick him in the post, but your best players are guards. You know, uh, when I was at Manhattan College, I had an NCAA team and my power forward, believe it or not, was 6'3", 260. Yeah. And was a great player at the college level. He actually played at the Matha High School for Morgan Wooten. So small ball, which the which interna- the international game somewhat popularized here in the last decade and a half, uh, at least at the NBA and college level, it's really been around basketball for a very, very long time, especially at the high school level. So I've learned being being around this game my whole life that everything – goes that goes around comes back around mm-hmm. and uh, unless your name is Newell or B or Iba, <laughs> there, there hasn't been very much that's been invented in, in recent in recent basketball history so you know this whole idea of international basketball setting the trend I think what they did was be, and let me just bring it back to high school basketball again sure international coaches and I'm going to give your your listeners a, a history lesson here and and you'll know this in the 60s and 70s guys like Chuck Daly and UB Brown and Lou Carnesecca um, and Jack Ramsey they 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 brought basketball around the world in the yes. summer with at, with clinics absolutely and they really, really opened up the eyes of international coaches. And so what's happened over, over the last 50 years is the international coaching community has, community has not only studied the game because of those great gentlemen and others that went over there, but they've now have their own influence on our game back here in the United States. And so the, inter, you know, the stretch big guy that can shoot it from outside, that's become big. But we've always had that small ball stuff. And the other influence, I think, that international basketball has brought back to at least the college and NBA level that so many great high school coaches are still utilizing is the idea that you actually have to work on fundamentals every day, mm-hmm. that you got to teach your kids to pass and catch and dribble and shoot and move without the ball and move your feet on defense. And that's no different than what great high school coaches have done forever and ever and ever. So while, you know, I would say the one last thing that they really had a, maybe a bigger influence on than anything else is the use of the pick and roll that now when I was coming up in the eighties, we all learned a passing game, you know, Bob Knight, Dean Smith. And we didn't use a lot of pick and roll in the eighties. Well, now all of a sudden, because of international basketball, the pick and roll has become part of our basketball culture. And even, even to the point where it's become big at the high school college level. So everything that goes around does come around, but there definitely has been somewhat of an influence coming back from overseas to the States. I do think, there, there is more of a willingness over the last five to seven years. Because even like you were saying, you know, you've got on your average high school team, you may have, you know, four six foot guys that are your four best guys. But you still right. felt you still felt the need to have, even if a kid was just six two. Well, we've got to have him posting him or her posting up uh, with their back to the basket and, and doing that type of thing. Yeah. I, I, I do think the the influence of of international ball is is giving more and more high school coaches more of the i guess the green light to say no yeah. you know what no we don't have to put somebody down at the block just because you feel like that's what you have to do you know type of a thing that's that's one of my interpretations what do you what do you, what do you think, think of that 
I think you're absolutely right. I think, you know, so many times, especially younger coaches, uh, yeah, let's take high school coaches, for example, because they really, uh, they're, they're at the forefront of teaching the game. I've always said, and I mean this with all my heart, five of the 10 best coaches I've ever been around in my life are high school basketball coaches. You know, a couple in New York and Jersey, a couple when I spent time, you know, in Ohio, you know, I can think of guys when I go, when I would go to a high school practice uh, in my college coaching days, and I would say to myself, that guy could coach in the Big Ten. Mm-hmm. It's just that for whatever reason, he's chosen to stay at the high school level. Or So I, I have a great, great appreciation for, for great high school coaches. So I think what happens is high school coaches learn how to improvise. And, and I think yeah. they understand that like we can't go out and recruit a big post guy. And in some in some places, in many places, I'm sure I know this is the case in, in the state of Nebraska. You're dealing with two and two and three sport kids yep. at the smaller school level, so you really have to improvise. And young coaches feel like when they start out, man, I gotta have a, I gotta have two post guys, and three perimeter guys. I'm watching I'm watching the way Purdue plays and the way Iowa plays. Yep. I gotta play that way. And as you get older, I think, and as you get, as you gain confidence in your own coaching ability, you realize, hey, my best athletes are smaller guys, and so if we have to play five guys, we'll play five guys on the perimeter. And so, like I said, it, it all comes back around. And uh, I absolutely think what you got to do as a high school coach or a college coach is you got to—it's a puzzle. Every year, you got to look at your personnel, figure out where your strengths are, um, where your weaknesses are. Do you have depth? Can you play ten guys? Can you put? Do you only have seven? Um, can you play five small guys? Do you have two post guys? Yeah. And I think what I always appreciate about high school coaching, Marty, is that you have to have the ability to improvise and adjust year in and year out. So, kind of along those lines. Uh, you beat me down a couple of questions down my list here. Uh-huh. So, but that's, that's okay. I, told you I didn't need you to prepare. For you. I, I told you I would. I would cover all this stuff. So um, fire away. Um, so if you're looking in, and if uh, you know, we we have access to so much. Like you, you know, you, we were talking about just in the last ten days, Twitter and social media has just exploded with coaches' clinics online and just yes. stuff bouncing around, and I've. I'm sitting here, you know, and and, and I got to take care of my full time job first. I got to learn how to be a history <laughs> teacher online. Uh, but but I'm I'm like God. I'm seeing all this stuff, and and I gotta you know I gotta jump in here at some point. But uh, yeah. um, as we're going through this, who who would who would be uh, some of the folks that that you've spent time with that if um, if if you're you you have to be yourself. You you, get, yes. you gotta you gotta be yes. who you are, and you can't yes. be somebody else. Uh, but if if you were to suggest two, three, four people uh, that you've worked with that that coaches should look at and go, hey, here's a lot of things that you can pick up with this guy. That's pretty much universal with any yeah. with any high school coach or a younger coach that's trying to kind of figure out their philosophy, their ideas uh, that they can adapt to. A high school game. Who who are some of those folks that you would suggest to, to study and, and look at well, their stuff? Tremendous question. It's a really good question. I've actually thought about this a lot lately. Um, first of all, right in your own state, you got two of the greatest offensive minds in college basketball. Okay, you know, and Greg McDermott and Fred Hoiberg. If you want to watch teams run offense as a thing of beauty. Um, those two guys really have a great feel for offensive basketball. Now, coach, coach, you're stealing more of my questions here. God yeah, darn it. I know, I know, I know. We're going to cover it all. <laughs> go, know, go, go, know, go ahead. Our, our, 
our talk's only 60 minutes today. I know you go a little longer, but I'm going to get an hour and a half's worth of information in this podcast. Outstanding. But, yeah, so right off the bat, um, and, and again, Greg's team, and again, I just watched with my son uh, this past week, and I've actually tweeted out some stuff on Creighton, but we just watched Creighton beating Villanova at Villanova a few weeks ago, yep. and, he, and we watched the tape together, and he basically broke the whole game down for me, and Dad, here's how we're supposed to guard this, but watch what they did on this and how they read this screen. and So, you know, now I will say – Greg's team right now has got a couple of years on Fred's team because Fred's still rebuilding, obviously. Oh, yeah. Which, oh, which yeah. you have with, yeah, what you have with Creighton right now with my my buddy Mitch Ballock and uh, you know and Zegarowski and, and those kids is you, you got kids that absolutely fit that offensive system that Greg runs. Well, Fred runs a lot of the same type of actions and a lot of spread out four guard type offense. That I think if I were a high school coach in the area, I would absolutely, when things calm down, you know, call one of their coaches up, go over, watch summer workouts or fall practices. And I think from an offensive standpoint, you have two of the best offensive coaches in the, in the entire country in, in the state of Nebraska. So that's where I would start. Now, I've, I've told people this recently. If I, if, if a young coach said to me, where would you want to spend one whole year with a coaching staff where as a young coach, you would get the most out of that experience? Like if you could yeah, just be, yeah. fly, be embedded. Fly on the wall. Yeah. 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 And I would say Kelvin Sampson at Houston. And the reason I say that is because, and, and again, we think alike, Kelvin and I, um, he has a way of teaching competitiveness and practice but not losing his own humanity as a mentor, teacher, and a coach. Um, he's not verbally accosting anybody, but every single practice that I watch when the University of Houston is, is practicing, there's a high level of intensity, toughness, competitiveness, um, an adherence to execution the way he wants it done. There's no shortcuts. They teach offense. They teach defense. They teach toughness. And they do it in a way, Marty, that it's it's you would want your son to play for Kelvin Sampson. Mm-hmm. And you know, and I would say the same thing about Tom Izzo at Michigan State. Are you gonna get yelled at at times by Tom Izzo? Yes, you will. But if you know the Tom Izzo that I know, you know he's an incredibly caring guy, a great mentor for both players and coaches, and can still teach the game of basketball, teach competitiveness. And, and not and not have it be in a way that is going to you know demean your son or daughter, um, despite the fact that on TV sometimes he jumps on those guys. And I thought I thought Cassius Winston had a great line after his career was over. He said, "The older guys told me that whenever Coach Izzo yelled at me, I was to walk up to him and put my arm around him." <laughs> and that would and that would defuse them. So those are just four right off the top of my head. There are so many other great coaches, but I really believe that uh, you have to be able to still teach competitiveness and toughness, but do it in a way that's humane and is uh, you know is not going to ever get near the line of being what I would call verbally abusive. You know, in a lot of those situations, the the, the armchair quarterbacks, like you're talking about Izzo and Samson, I completely agree with you. On, yeah. on both of those examples, um, you know, there, there was a thing a year or two ago where where Coach Izzo really got on the kid and Aaron, and that, Aaron Henry, yeah, 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 and it went Here's over and over again, yeah, yeah. you know, 
Um, but Coach Izzo is in that situation, and that kid probably knows why he's going to get his ass chewed before he even gets over there, and he understands it, and he accepts it, and he acknowledges it, and 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 he's rolling with it, and his teammates understand it because they've they've built that kind of relationship, and they know that he cares, and the reason yeah. why he's so upset is because yeah. he cares, and I think yeah. sometimes, don't you think, Coach, that that we have we have situations where we have uh, uh, some parents and, and players, like on the high school level, who don't uh, don't understand that when when we get upset with players, it's because yeah. we care about them so much and we want them to do well, and 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 that's we're, we're trying to push them to a level that they can't or won't push for themselves. Does that does that make sense? It makes perfect sense, and I, I coach exactly that way. I, I was never satisfied with a player just doing enough to get better. It was always, what can we get out of you? Like, I wanted them to understand, you know, from my point of view, that you're going to look back someday and thank me for for holding you accountable every single day of your career, whether it was going to class, turning in your academic assignments, or when you showed up for two hours of practice that I was going to absolutely make sure you did everything to the best of your ability. Because to me, those, those are the lessons that athletics teaches you. It teaches you sacrifice. It teaches you overcoming adversity, which by the way, I was great at creating in practice. Yeah. Um, to me, I think I used to make practices, and, I, and I'm not talking about yelling now, but I used to make practices much tougher than the game. Mm-hmm. And I'm not talking about four-hour practices, Marty. I'm no. just talking no. about, you know, we were creating drills that were just overly much harder than what you would be able to have to deal with in the game. And I think that's what great coaches do. They bring the most out of a young man or young lady. And let's face it, but in modern, in, in our modern times, you know, uh, it's not so much the kids, it's the parents don't understand. Unless you were an athlete in the 60s and 70s and, you know, you you had coaches like that, you know, everybody, everybody I see this all the time, everybody thinks their kid's going to the NBA or is automatically high, playing in high school so they're a Division One player. And, uh, you know, coaches have to keep it real. And, and um, I was very, very demanding, but... My relationship with many of my players is so strong today because they look back and say, you know, I didn't get why you were so tough on me. But now that I have three kids um, and I'm trying to make sure they stay on their straight and narrow, I absolutely get it, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, so, yeah, I think I know we've segued into that uh, in area of coaching philosophy. But I have to tell you this one story, if you don't mind. Um, Floor is yours, coach. Okay, I, I had a team back in 1995, and this was a team that ended up being one of those Cinderella stories. And we knocked off Oklahoma in the NCAA tournament. And, and actually, it was the first time I got to know Kelvin Sampson. And they had a number four seed. They were great in the Big Eight that year. Uh, anyway, we beat them, and it was a fun win. It was great. But the most important or biggest, best moment of my coaching career happened that season, and it wasn't that game. Late in the season, regular season, we were like, we had a really good team. We were 21 and three. I remember those teams, yeah. Yeah. And I, and I said to my coaching staff, we're about two weeks from the end of the regular season. And we had taken off Tuesday and we didn't play till Saturday. And of course, you know how long a college season is. Absolutely. And I said to my coaching staff, it was a Wednesday practice. We weren't playing until Saturday. And I said to the guys in the coach's locker room beforehand, I said, hey, get ready because I'm going to kick them out of practice. Uh, five minutes in, 
and they're looking at me like I had three heads. I said, they needed, they need another day off. I want them to be fresh, but I don't want them to think I'm satisfied. So get ready. I'm going to make something up and kick them out. Okay. So we go out onto the court and five minutes in one of my uh, point guards throws the ball away in a, in a drill and I go ballistic on the whole team. Mm-hmm. And I, I basically, uh, you know, I basically I can't really repeat exactly what I said, <laughs> but it was, but I did say like, you guys think you're better than you are. You know, you showed up here today, you had the day off yesterday. So you think you're going to come out here and go half speed. Well, I made this all up. So I kick them out <laughs> and I go up to my, I go up to my office and the coaches come up with me and they're smiling at me. And they said, you know, Hey, that was uh, you could have got an Academy Award for that acting performance. <laughs> About five minutes later, one of my managers came up to the office uh, and said, Coach, they're still practicing. And I said, what are you talking about? He said, oh, no, they can leave. They, they took the practice plan. They're, they're practicing on their own right now. And my coaches said, should we go down there? And I said, no, it's not our team anymore. It's their team. And that's they, exactly they what you want. Yeah, they took so much pride in what we did every single day in practice. They actually thought they were letting me down and themselves down, and they kept practicing. Mm-hmm. And I did not tell them that story uh, for about 15 years. But when I think about it, I get very emotional because that's what you want out of a team. You want a yeah. team that has so much pride in what they do every day that a coach doesn't even need to be there, and they'll still do it. Yep, yep. I had a, a group one year, um, and – we had a, a gal that was, an, uh, I, had, I had a great group of about, I think there were seven seniors all together. And there was a, there was a gal who was a year or two younger than them. And the kids had made a pact to, to not drink during the season. Not that they should be yeah. doing it anyway, but yeah. you know, with, yeah. with their high school kids. And, yes. and, uh, you know, this, uh, this, this, there was a, a younger player who, who went to a, a party and they found out that this gal had, had been drinking and she didn't get caught, didn't get yeah. caught by her parents, didn't get caught by the police or anything like that. But the, yeah. but the players found out about it and they didn't tell me this until about six years later, but they took that gal out onto the track in the middle of a Nebraska winter and they yeah. made her run for breaking the non-drinking pact and there's a reason that that team probably had 10 win talent that ended up winning 16 games because of that because of that bond because of the way that they uh felt about each other because of the commitment that they had to one another and to not let each other down and it was it was a magical group of kids to coach so you know when you get that that it's special when you get that it's special well, and I also think, you know, it's funny because I've never coached young ladies except at camps and stuff. And I know maybe you can't be quite as tough on that. Maybe you can. But I, to me, like, whether it's young ladies or young men, I think the best thing, one of the best things a coach can practice when they set up their practices, particularly, is peer pressure. Mm-hmm. You know, like, where, you know, we're going to, we have to make a certain amount of layups and a certain amount of minutes as a team. Or we have to, we have to play the seven minute scrimmage without a turnover, you know, mm-hmm. uh, whatever it might be. You know, just the fact that the coach isn't the one that's policing the execution. It's the, it's the peer pressure that comes from being in these drills that you make, again, tougher than the game. And if you don't make a certain amount, whatever, in a time frame or amount of, amount of shots in a time frame, 
then, you know, the whole team gets dealt with or maybe, you know, a punishment, a sprint or two or whatever. And I think peer pressure is absolutely a big part of creating a culture of accountability because if it's just the coach holding everybody accountable and not the players to each other, I just don't think you have the same type of, I don't think you have the the culture that you need to be really, really successful. I agree. I agree. So, uh, let's jump, let's jump into that. Um, how, can you improve the the character of an individual player? I think you can. I think you can. I think I used to say I, I, I've had it asked different ways. I've had people ask me, can you foster toughness? And when I say when we say toughness, we're not talking about, you know, a young lady or young guy throwing elbows, sure. cheap shotting people. We're talking about the tough, the, 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 the mental and physical toughness to play your hardest, to compete when you're tired and fatigued. And I think if someone's got good character, you can absolutely teach them to become, uh, you know, a, a better teammate, uh, a tougher player, a uh, more competitive player by how you how you set your drills up. Again, it gets back to peer pressure. I call it the overload theory in practice. Again, making drills tougher than the game. Uh, and, and again, it's got to be that uh, time pressure. Uh, it's got to be peer pressure. It's got to be all those things. But I absolutely think you can improve someone's basketball character if they're a good person. And if they have no interest in committing to a team situation and they, they you know if they don't if they don't put we before me you probably don't want that young lady or uh, or young man around uh coaching you don't want to coach them anyway but there have been cases where i've coached young people who were kind of could go either way and because of our team's culture and because of the way i set up the structure of practice uh, every single day that they had no choice but to learn how to compete and to be physically and mentally tougher. But they had to have some sense of, of, of being a good person to start, and we can teach them the rest when it came to what I would call physical and mental toughness. How do you take, and kind of related to that, uh, yep. how, do you, how do you take, um, how do you take good chemistry and make it great chemistry? Another really good question. Um, I think that, I think that uh, part of it is, I, I'll tell you, so much of what we're talking about really goes back to what, I, what I've already said and what I'll say continually again. Um, one of the greatest things I prided myself as a coach, um, and, I, and I was fortunate. I, I, I was a head coach nine years. I went to eight postseasons won nearly 70% of my games. So I, I had some success, but, but everything revolved around, uh, how we practiced every day. Um, and I, I, I can share this now. Um, I can remember there was a great high school coach in New York at Archbishop Malloy high school. His name was Jack Curran and coach Curran was kind of in the same mold as Morgan. Uh, he coached for many, many years had, you know, he coached Kenny Anderson, uh, the great Kenny Smith, who's now a TV star, but was a great NBA player, NBA championships. He coached. Oh yeah. Got you know he coached some amazing players. You know Kenny Anderson is the best high school freshman ever to play in New York City basketball. Played in the NBA a long time. Legacy so, of New York City point guards there. Yeah, yep. yeah. Both of those guys at the in his, you know at the same program. And Coach Curran won over a thousand baseball games and a thousand basketball games. And he was very close to Dean Smith. He sent many players down to Carolina through. 
years. And uh, I, I got on a rental car uh, uh, bus one day, and Dean Smith was on the bus, and I introduced myself, you know, and uh, and I had I, maybe at that time I'd gone to St. John's from Manhattan. And Coach, I introduced myself to Coach Smith, and he said, Jack Curran told me that you run the best practices he's ever seen. And coming from Jack Curran and then Dean Smith, that, I mean, you could imagine how a young coach would feel about that kind of compliment. So it really comes back to practice. And so the way and you, you ask the question, how do you take a good culture and turn it into a great culture? Because you practice with so much intensity, um, with so much commitment to excellence, with so much commitment to the finer details of the game, because you get the kids to help each other buy into everything you're doing, um, it adds up and it takes good culture to great culture. I'll give you a great example. We did the same for 25 minutes of practice every single day to start. It was all footwork, fundamentals, catching, passing, dribbling. And if you came to our practice, it looked like a well-oiled machine. And I used to tell my players, I know you're bored, okay? I know you're bored doing this every day. I got a secret. I'm bored too, okay? <laughs> the, the first 25 minutes of practice bores me. But we do this every day because um, I used to tell them this line, don't get bored if you're getting better, okay? Oh, that's a great and line. I, and then I would say to a player, I'd say, Marty, <clears throat> I know you're bored with this foot, this UCLA drill we do every day, this footwork drill. How many times have you traveled this year? And you would say to me, Coach, I haven't traveled once this year. I go, no fooling. Why do you think we do this every day? And so, like, you know, those kind of commitments to the little things, you know, develops a sense of pride in your culture. And so good culture grows stronger the more people are in your culture for a long period of time. So when your freshmen come in, if they miss what we, we didn't run line drills during the season, I, I was I would be insulted if someone said, "How come you don't run after practice?" I created practices that were so hard that even if we were out there for ninety minutes, I wanted those guys sucking wind at the end of ninety minutes. We didn't have to run, yeah, because we did we did all the running in practice. But in the preseason, we would run with what we call twenty suicides in twenty minutes, mm -hmm. and and if you missed one line, we started everything all over. And I would put 20 minutes on the clock, and they had a certain amount of time they had to get back. They had to make the suicide in 32 seconds. We, we adjusted for the big guys. But at 19 minutes, they went again. And at 18, they went again. And at 17, they went again. And invariably, Marty, there would be a freshman that with four minutes on that clock would miss a line. And I would say, hold on. Marty missed a line. Put 20 minutes back on the clock, and we'd start all over again. And that's the last time that guy would ever miss a, miss a line during our 2020s, you yeah. know, for the rest of his career. So you build a culture by what you demand and practice every day, and that culture grows stronger and stronger. I got to be honest, Coach. I would have tapped out at about the 16-minute mark. <laughs> hey, believe me. <laughs> believe me. Let me tell you something. You talk about peer pressure. That oh, freshman yeah. never – That those freshmen who did it maybe once would never do it again because yep. – the, the upperclassmen would grab him by the practice jersey and say, you better never, ever, ever miss a line when we run this drill for the rest of your career. Yep. And they would hold each other accountable. Yep. Very simple. We did a deal where we would <laughs> – we, uh, we had stations, different stations during our preseason conditioning. And if a kid wasn't talking the entire time or if they didn't sprint from one station to the next – 
you know, we'd say, okay, we've got two complete cycles of these 10 stations. They're a minute a piece. And if we do it right all the way through, we're done. But if we, if we screw it up, we got to start all over again. And it's kind of the same thing. You know, a, a freshman would, would goof up and okay. And you wouldn't have to yell or kick or scream. You just say, Hey, exactly. no. you know, and you didn't even have to really point it out. You just kind of say, Hey, somebody didn't do their job. We got to start over again. And it was a great way to build that accountability within the kids and within the program. So, well, yeah, and, and, and I tell you, I'm going to add to that. One of the things, because I got a flood of memories coming back now, but just adding on to what you just said, I used to show the guys late in the season. Just, I know it sounds like, okay, if you're this demanding, you must practice three or four hours a day. No, absolutely not. We got to February 1st, towards that last month of our regular season in college. Our, our our practices were sixty minutes. Mm-hmm. We may watch we may watch a little more film, get a little more shooting in, but we were only going to practice a certain amount of time because I believed in fresh legs late in the year. So I would show the guys the practice plan before practice when we circled up, and I would say, Marty, what's to say? And you would say to me, Coach, it says sixty minutes. I'd say, Okay, guys, I only want to be out here sixty minutes. If you want to be out here ninety, then just go eighty percent. Yep. Because we're going to be out here at 60 minutes if you do everything nice, uh, with to, you know, to the utmost of your intensity. And so we, we conditioned them. And I used to set up our drills like, and I would tell them like, you know, shell drill and, and no ball drills on defense where we worked on technique and, and, you know, those kind of things. I would say the harder we go, the shorter the drill is. Yep. So if you want to half-ass it, We'll stay in this drill longer than I have down on the practice plan. But I'll cut the drill short if you go as hard as you possibly can. And so, again, we we tried to create a mentality that we did everything full speed. You know, we didn't take water breaks. When you were out of a drill, you could drink as much as you wanted. If we were in a shell drill and you were out, hey, you drink as much as you want. But when you're back in the drill, you go full speed. And so we, we created a, a mentality that we wanted um, and we wanted that kind of accountability and culture. And it gets back to what you asked me before. Can you improve someone's basketball character? And you can by the way you structure your practices and, and, and have everything, everyone accountable to the team. You, uh, you know, you talked about how kind of you, you, you stepped away at 43 um, you, you were, you went from Manhattan to, to St. John's and then you went down to New Mexico and, you know, things did not turn out the way that anybody wanted, especially you. And, and, uh, but one of the things when I was researching, uh, for today was, uh, you talked about fit and, and finding the right place. And now, obviously, it's kind of the the hot stove season for for basketball coaches, especially at the high school level. This is the time yeah. of period where where things really start to move and shake. Uh, what are some things that coaches could or should be looking for if they're looking to make a move and 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 describe you know that fit and those type of things? Well, it's simple. It's probably similar at the college and high school level. Who's your athletic director? And who's your superintendent? And and are they are they in are they in alignment with your with your vision for the, for the for the program? You know, if you're talking about the high school level, I mean, is your are you going into a rebuilding situation? Does your athletic director and your superintendent have realistic expectations for you know what you're trying to build and the culture you're trying to create? 
And then, you know, the other thing about fit is can you go somewhere where you're going to, again, what I, what I admire about the high school coaches is how much they have to improvise and adjust and change their philosophy maybe from one year to another, depending on what their material is. Uh, so, that, you know, you've got to have the ability or at least the uh, relationship with the people that you're working for to be, to be able to um, let them know here's the vision and here's what the goals are and, and make sure they're in alignment and, uh, and allow you to run your program the way you think it's best run. Um, I, I don't think you can be someone else. You have to be yourself, obviously. Um, and <clears throat> along those lines, I think the other thing is, and it comes to improvising, like I, I honestly think, you know, Jeff, I, 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 I wonder, like, are you a high school or college coach who's coached 20 years, but you've only coached one year 20 times? Mm-hmm. Or have you coached 20 to, have you coached 20 years? In other words, have you adjusted? Have you morphed into, you know, maybe changing your philosophy because you've learned things about the game? And I think that's really important. This time right now, we're kind of in such a strange time with this coronavirus uh, situation going on that it's almost an ideal time for a coach to take stock of a way of the ways they can maybe improve between now and the next school year. Um, Jeff Van Gundy, who I worked for for one year when I was scouting for the New York Knicks, I, I use this line all the time, make as many pressure decisions in a non-pressure time of the offseason. Like this is the perfect time to start thinking about next season and how you're going to, you know, whether you're taking a new job or not, you know, uh, and, 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 and saying, I want to get better at this. You know, we got pressed this year too much and my press offense stunk. I got to, we got to become a better press offense team, or I think I'm going to have the kind of material next year where I got 10 really good athletes. We don't have a lot of great basketball players, but I'm going to have some really athletic kids, and, I, and I've never pressed before, so I think we can full court press in our in our league. You know, I, I think I think that um, you know I think coaches have got to constantly keep improving, but along with improving is you got to know who you are, and so when you do change jobs, you got to understand what the uh, expectations are, but ultimately it's about who you're working for because you're not going to be happy if you're working for people who don't understand the culture of what you're trying to build and. Even people who don't really care whether you, your basketball team is good or not. I know that's often a big thing at the high school level. Mm-hmm. Give us one or two really good player development drills. Uh, describe that. Oh, oh, that's good. That's a good question. Um, I, I'll tell you, um, I having two sons that played high school basketball who were just average athletes, 5'11", 5'10", and both went on to the Division One level. Uh, one one was a walk on at Oklahoma, and the other one played for Tommy Amaker at Harvard. Um, I and one of the reasons I loved not going back to coaching is I got to spend time with them in the summer. Mm-hmm. And we had this we had this rule, Marty: no more than seventy five minutes in a workout. If you wanted to stay in the gym by yourself, I was going to leave you. I'll come back and pick you up. But I didn't want to overdo it with my kids. I didn't want them to hate their dad twenty years later because. I made them stay in the gym five or six hours, you know, you, so. You didn't want to be I, Marv Marinovich? Was it Marv Marinovich? Yeah, I did not. Yeah, and yeah. I, you know what? I, I have such a great relationship with those guys now because we, I cultivated a love of the game from those guys. It uh-huh. wasn't work. It was fun. It was being with dad. And I think, 
I think that's, especially if you've got coaches who are listening or coaching your kids, you know, is make it fun. Don't make it work and drudgery where the kid hates to come home at night, look you in the eye because you, you had him out there for four hours. But I, I, I'll tell you, I, I would suggest to use, I use the chair. And that sounds crazy. I used the chair a lot when we did our skill workouts. Um, we used chairs as defenders to dribble, you know, dribble in and out, make moves like an in and out dribble, crossover dribble. Yeah. Sometimes it would be just me, the chair, and my, my son, right? Mm-hmm. And we would work on coming off screens, the chair being the screener. Um, both of those guys, uh, their high school coach was a guy that really bought into pick and roll. So we did a lot of pick and roll, various parts of the court. The chair was the screener and I was the defender. So I would hedge out. I would soft hedge. I would jump out early and they would split it. We worked on all our pick and roll coverages. So I think you got to have an imagination if you're, if you're working with young people and developing, uh, you know, that kind of routine. So I would say that was the first thing. Uh, we used a chair a lot in our drills as the third person on the court. And the other thing was, is work on, I think shooting is so critical right now. Break down shooting to the best of your ability. Keep shooting from, you know, from three feet out to the three-point line and break it down and make sure if you're teaching young kids, middle school, early high school, and then even into the high school, you know, varsity level, that you're breaking down shooting and making sure that they develop proper shot mechanics. And we did a lot of that from three feet out, one hand shooting, backed it out. And then we incorporated all the drill work with the chairs into, into shooting drills off the dribble. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. Kept it simple. Yep. It's amazing. You, you see stuff, and I'm not saying that like the personal trainer movement isn't a good thing because there's a lot of yeah. good things that come out of it, but right. there's some it, it, weird, wacky stuff, uh, as Johnny yeah. Carson would say, weird, wild stuff out there, you know. Um, yes. You know. Yeah, oh, yeah. We, we, <laughs> oh, yeah. Rubber gloves and, uh, <laughs> I mean, you name it, like crazy stuff. You know, I mean, like uh, – yeah, now, listen, we, we fooled with weighted gloves and we fooled with heavy balls and things like that. I don't think that's all bad, um, but I think really ultimately it comes back, back to, uh, you know, uh, we, <clears throat> I got to tell you, I said it this, I said at the very beginning, I was a schoolyard basketball junkie. I got to be a really good player, uh, definitely a Division three, maybe a Division two level player by the time I finished college because I still played so much and mm-hmm. I did it all on my own. Yeah. On the on, a, on the playgrounds, and I, if I got my butt kicked in a pickup game at a playground, again we're talking about really good athletic D one guys. I'd go back to the park the next day and work on that stuff and work on my weaknesses. So I, I don't think we get enough of that anymore. Where now kids have to have trainers. Um, I'm gonna. I know we're gonna wind this up soon, but I want to give your listeners, your coaches, um, FIBA. Just you can Google FIBA coaching clinics. And there's a gentleman on there. He was the he, last year, not this past season, but last year, he was the coach of the Phoenix Suns. He's Serbian. His name is Igor Kokoshkov. I'm going to see if I can spell it. K O K O S K O V. Okay. Um, but FIBA Coaching Clinics, Google it. They have these great videos. They have American coaches. They have international coaches. He coached Steve Nash, 
Um, he coached Ricky Rubio with the Utah Jazz when he was an assistant with, with uh, Quinn Snyder. There's a there's a tape he's got. It's called Drills for Guards, and your coaches will love it. It's about an hour and twenty minutes long, and it's all the drills he used to help develop Steve Nash. That, FIBA coaching clinics. Put that up. Yeah, and. and- that would be good if you had Steve Nash on your team. So, <laughs> well, I'll tell you. It, it, but you know what? All the drills I, I used yep. all those drills with my sons. Yep. Oh yeah, and, yeah. It's it's and, so and transferable. They're, they're, they're very very transferable to the high school level. Yep. Yep. Coach, how can folks reach out to you, uh, social media wise? Well, uh, at Fran Frischella on Twitter, uh, you know. Reach out to me. Uh, yeah, I'm putting a lot of coaching stuff up there. I always do. I always put articles up, X and O stuff. Now I'm making videos, so I'm really dangerous now. <laughs> but uh, I'm, I'm here to help. I'm here to uh, keep learning and keep passing on to high school and college coaches the stuff I'm learning. And, you know, passing on what's been a love of, love of the game for me for you know almost 50 years. Well, Coach, I, I can't thank you enough for coming on here today. Um, so appreciative, so so appreciative of our go-between that 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 put us together here, yeah. and and I hope you've enjoyed your time on the podcast. So I have, and uh, all the best to you and uh, all the coaches who listen. And uh, you're going to be on my podcast as I as I start uh, on my on my list as I start these. Uh, five-mile walks daily. Very good. Well, if you could hold the line for just one second, got to finish up a couple things, and then we'll, we'll, we'll end it here. Um, we want to thank COSAC Chiropractic once again for sponsoring the pod. If you need anything chiropractically, uh, give Dr. Kevin or Dr. Heidi a call, 402-964-0300. Follow us on Twitter, a pen and a napkin. Coach, could I get a follow from you on the Twitter there? We're going to do it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to do that as soon as we hang up. Awesome. Uh, download, rate, and review the podcast here on SoundCloud or iTunes. Questions, comments, suggestions, ideas, email us at a pen and a napkin at gmail.com. This has been a terrific hour with Coach Fran Frischilla from ESPN. Uh, coaches, stay safe. And as always, be sure to continue to hone your craft one day at a time. <laughs>